As we've discussed multiple times in this podcast, the world of Bible translation is severely hindered by the status quo of locking up biblical resources under a copyright all rights reserved system. The global church suffers tremendously because of this as well, and they only receive the crumbs that fall off the table of the rich Western Christian publishing industry. There's no longer a distinction between the world and the church in the practice of monetizing everything, even gospel ministry, and the resources needed to make Bible translation truly succeed and be sustainable. So I'm deeply thankful that someone has finally published a book that directly addresses the problem of the commercialization of Christianity. We're going to talk to him over the next two episodes and see what we can learn. I'm Andrew Case. This is Working for the Word, and you're not going to want to miss this. Just a quick fair warning before we get started, if you don't have a sense of humor or can't handle a biblical sense of irony and sarcasm or are easily offended by radical new ideas, this probably isn't the episode for you. I remember a number of years ago when the Hunger Games books started coming out and the whole world was ablaze with excitement. Copies of the books were stacked at the front of every bookstore, and Hollywood was scrambling to exploit the hype with some movie versions. Since then, the world has become fascinated by and enamored with the idea of a dystopian future. So I've wondered, what would a Christian dystopia be like? Let me describe a possible scenario. In a Christian dystopia, the first thing you might notice is that it's considered normal to pay for your friendships. If you want someone who seems trustworthy, will listen to you for hours, offer advice, and make you feel loved, you have to pay for it by the hour. What's more, only the rich are able to afford these kinds of friendships. In this world, There are also many who actively profit from the brokenness and weakness and loneliness of other Christians. Only those who are desperate enough to pay a hefty fee are able to get meaningful help or encouragement in their struggles, addictions, and depression. These friendships for a fee are called by different names like biblical counselors or Christian psychologists. You quickly realize that in this Christian dystopia, everything is done for money, and everyone has a thousand seemingly good reasons for maintaining this status quo. Looking around, you see ministries who exist because of the generous, sacrificial support of other Christians who expect nothing in return. But these same ministries then turn around and sell the content they produce. You see pastors and leaders who have no time or wisdom to help their congregants with their problems and instead send them to secular counselors who exploit them for as much money as they can. The peddling of God's word has become so standard that no one would ever question it. The sale of the gospel in all forms has become highly respectable and most people would frown upon any other practice. A limited number of rich Christians hoard their abundance of biblical resources and teaching, refusing to share with the rest of the church unless 
they sign agreements and pay fees and do not share with their neighbors. The words of the prophet Micah ring more true than ever when he says, its leaders give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on Yahweh and say, is not Yahweh in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. Ministers even charge money to download their sermons. Everyone's hero and model is Elisha's servant Gehazi, who ran after Naaman to get the wealth that any man of God obviously deserved. Ancient manuscripts of the Bible are greedily monetized and forbidden from being copied and displayed. Christians are constantly threatening each other with lawsuits for using each other's artwork, writing, or music even. Churches cannot even sing worship music without risking a lawsuit, and men go to court against their own brothers in Christ over the printing of the words of a hymn without permission. Meanwhile, Christian blogs, websites, and other media are constantly monetized with ads and sponsors. Podcast documentaries are created to exploit the scandalous sin and failure of celebrity Christians, which succeed in raking in fortunes by advertising secular mental health cash-grabbing machines. But then you breathe a huge sigh of relief when you realize all of this is just imaginary could never happen in real life. Thank goodness. So let me introduce our guest. Conley Owens has an MDiv from the Log College and Seminary and is a pastor at Silicon Valley Reformed Baptist Church and a senior software engineer at Google. He has written a book that is free in every format, even audio, available over at thedorianprinciple.org. It's published as public domain, and you can even order a print copy and receive it for free with free shipping. So there's no excuse not to read his book after you listen to this interview. Here's a back-of-the-book description. Many rightly condemn the wealth amassed by false teachers, but at a fundamental level, little differentiates their practices from those of legitimate ministries. Seminaries, Christian publishers, and other church and parachurch organizations all engage in the commerce of exchanging religious instruction for money. Now, more than ever, the church must turn to the Word of God to find wisdom on these matters. The Dorian Principle offers a fresh look at the Bible's guidance on ministry fundraising and exposes common practices that run afoul of its instruction. Conley Owens presents a robust synthesis of Jesus and the Apostle Paul's theology, concluding that ministry should be supported, not sold. Drawing from his experience as both a pastor and an engineer, he provides practical solutions to the challenges that lie at the intersection of money and ministry. I live with my wife and eight kids in Sunnyvale, California. And as far as uh, getting into licensing, yeah, I was introduced to free software, open source software back in college. And then as I got more interested in that, I got very interested in the philosophy behind it, 
which is all about copyright licensing, and especially when it comes to engineering, how we ought to approach these things. But then uh, that kind of bleeds over into arts and other areas where copyright touches. So I, I even had a club I had started in college. That's actually how I met my wife. And in advertising for my club, I had climbed up into a tree and was throwing CDs of freely licensed music at people. That's how she, That's how we met. <laughs> that is a love story I have not heard before. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've written what I think may be one of the most important books in the last hundred years. And so could you give us a summary of what it's about and why you wrote it? Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's very high praise. Just to say something about the importance of the book. You know, a book is only as important as it has an impact. And my book has not had that much impact yet. So by that measure, it's not necessarily very important at all. But I, I do hope that it would have a, a large impact and that it could really radically changed the way that the church operates in a lot of senses. The word Dorian is the Greek adverb that means freely. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, freely you receive, freely give. But then right after that, he says, a worker is worthy of his food. And in Luke, it's a worker is worthy of his wages. So it's a book about how you hold those two truths together. How do you say that the minister should freely give and also that he's worthy of his food or worthy of his wages? And the answer is simply that ministry should never be sold although it should be supported. It should be supported by co-laborers rather than customers. And that's that's really the sum of it. Yeah, thank you. So let's dig deeper. Could you walk us through a deeper dive of the biblical basis for your thesis in this book? Sure, well, just continuing to talk about Matthew 10 for a bit. If you consider what Jesus says, you know, workers worthy of his food, a lot of people immediately take that to mean, well, therefore, he can, you know, just charge people for this work that he's doing. But who is the employer in that circumstance? In context, both in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, just before, Jesus had said that we should pray for God to send more laborers into the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. And so if, if God is Lord of the harvest, he is the employer. And when we think about terms like wages, we have to think about how they are coming from him, not how they are coming from people as though those people were customers, right? It might come from uh, the hands of men as God sends servants to, to support his servants. But yeah, the Lord is the employer, not men. And you see that also in Paul's analogies he makes in 1 Corinthians 9. He makes several different analogies about how ministers have a right to support. And one of them he gives the probably the most important one is to the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Now the Levites were supported by the Israelites and the Israelites had a duty to support them. But if you consider that duty, it wasn't this direct obligation directly from the Levite uh, from the Israelites to the Levites, but rather an obligation that was mediated by God, where the Israelites gave their tithes, their offerings, their sacrifices to God, and then for the Levites, the Lord was their inheritance, and so they received of these things. Now, if you had bypassed that mediation of God, right, if, if that triangle had been bypassed and the Israelites were giving directly to the Levites, that'd be idolatry to give offerings and tithes mm -hmm. and sacrifices to men. That would be false worship. So considering these things, all the things the Bible says about ministers being supported, it becomes apparent that we can't just think of it as a commercial transaction, that rather there's something more going on as, as we bring God into the picture. How do you think we've gotten to this point of reading scripture through a lens that doesn't take some of these things that you're arguing for from scripture into account. 
Right. So this is this has always been a problem in the church in one sense or another. Obviously, this is something that Paul was dealing with a lot in his ministry. I mean, he's he's contending with the super apostles who are essentially charging for ministry. You know, he calls them peddlers of the word, or at least he implicates that in Second Corinthians 2. So it's something that's always been part of the church. You see this in early church writings. These authors warned that if someone came to them and wanted to prophesy to them for money, they should consider them to be false teachers and send them on their way. And then later on, you see uh, people selling ordinations, right? Selling the laying on of hands. Later on, you see relics being sold. Later on, indulgences and the whole Reformation starts out of that. Uh, forced tithing by the hand of the government. And which essentially functions the same way, you know, in order to have your church membership or in order to have your your citizenship even, uh, you would have to give money to uh, whatever church. Eventually yeah. you had pew rents, which a lot of people aren't familiar with this, with this concept, but it was pretty popular during the, the 1700s and the 1800s to charge people rent for their pew. So if you were poor, you would just sit in the back or, or whatever the case may be. Anyway, so there's nothing, so there, in one sense, there's mm-hmm. nothing new. Uh, however, the thing that I'm most concerned about, as you mentioned in the beginning, having to do with licensing and copyright, copyright has only existed since 1710 with the Statute of Anne. And so it was only since then that authors have been able to charge royalties for their writings prior to that, that was not how they would make their their money. They would be getting the word out with whatever they were writing, perhaps in order to, you know, get support or whatever the the case may be, but not not directly financially, unless they would put a dedication at the beginning of the book, in which case, you know, maybe the queen or or whatever duke they were dedicating this to would support them. But yeah, I have a quote here from a book called uh, 500 Years of Printing by S.H. Steinberg. He says, until the middle of the 18th century, it was considered bad manners to write for remuneration instead of for reputation. Up to that time, only a few writers had ever received a fee from their publishers. And if they received it, they were anxious to hide the fact. Erasmus, for instance, was deeply hurt when some Italian colleagues hinted that Aldus Mantius had paid him for a book, and he violently defended himself against similar insinuations on the part of Hutton and others. Luther never received so much as a farthing for his hundreds of books and pamphlets. So yeah, you have this this history behind us where prior to copyright, books and works, I- ideas, right, content was not being sold. Now that's primarily where the commercialization is happening in Christianity is through content and the sale of content. In your book, you make a distinction between co-labor and reciprocity, which is something that not, not a lot of people are talking about. Could you help walk us through the biblical basis for that and what it means? Right. So that's the distinction I make in uh, in Matthew 10, where Jesus says, freely you receive, freely give, and then says a worker is worthy of his food. What, what is the distinction? Because he can't be saying uh, receive no pay and then receive pay. So I, I think the words that best encapsulate this are reciprocity and co-labor. So the way I define co-labor and reciprocity in the book is reciprocity is support material or otherwise given to a minister out of a sense of direct obligation for his ministry of the gospel. And then ministerial co-labor would be support material or otherwise given by man to a minister out of a sense of obligation to God to honor or, or aid in the proclamation of the gospel. So, Going back to that analogy that I was talking about with Paul, right, it'd be the difference between the Israelites giving directly to the Levites as though they had a direct obligation to them, recognizing them as the source of all the grace and favor they receive, or 
co-labor would be them giving to God, and then out of their giving to God, them handing these things to the Levites. So it's it's really whether or not we are considering this person that we're giving to, the source of the gospel, and giving directly to them, or whether or not we are uh, recognizing that God is the source of the gospel, and he is the one who ought to be given to. And so we ought to simply give to where he would have those funds be allocated, in which case ministry is certainly a wonderful place for that. And so in summary, co-labor, you're working together with others for the sake of the gospel. Of reciprocity, you're trying to purchase the gospel. And if you think about what happened with Simon Magus, uh, this is essentially what he was trying to do, is he's trying to purchase the grace of God, uh, a greater measure of the Holy Spirit. Simony has traditionally been defined as trying to exchange temporal goods for spiritual goods. And that's what we see going on a lot today, is an exchange mm. of temporal goods for what essentially amounts to spiritual benefits. It might not be in the same sense as it used to be, where you were purchasing a laying on of hands, you know, some kind of direct transfer of the Holy Spirit or something like that, but it still has similar qualities. Right. Now, this may be completely out of left field for a lot of people to hear. Obviously, there are a lot of people who would vehemently disagree with a lot of things you say in the book, and that you just said, because we're so entrenched in the status quo of profiting from Christian writing and ministry. So let me try to anticipate some of the objections that people might have to your message. So if you'll indulge me first, doesn't the Bible say that the laborer is worthy of his wages? You already mentioned that, but let's let's like hang out there for a little bit and maybe press that point a little bit. Sure, absolutely. Uh, a worker is worthy of his wages, and who who is, you know, in a sense, contractually obligated to make sure he is paid? I would say the answer to that question is God. Now, people might shrink back at the idea of God being obligated to anyone, but God has made promises, and he has uh, given us comforts by way of covenant. And in this case, he has, he has promised to care for his ministers. And so it is the Lord who should provide for his ministers. Now, he will do that by ordering his other servants to give to them. So I certainly think that ministers should be supported. And uh, as a Reformed Baptist, I affirm the Second London Baptist Confession, paragraph 26.10, which says that ideally ministers should be supported full-time so that they can be full-time in the word, in the uh, proclamation of it, and prayer. So, yeah, I certainly wouldn't say that most ministers should be bivocational or all ministers should be bivocational or anything like that. I really do believe that every minister ought to be supported in full. Now, an additional thing I'll say here is that if you consider how this passage comes out in Paul's writing, especially in 1 Timothy 5, where he says a worker is worthy of his wages, he's arguing that ministers should be supported. And he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, so worthy of double honor. I think the way a lot of people end up reading this, if they're reading it too quickly, is something like, uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of honor. Uh, double honor for those who labor in preaching and teaching. But that's that's not what it says. It basically says that all the elders should be considered worthy of double honor. So the double isn't a comparison from one kind of elder to another kind of el- elder. It, it's a comparison to something co- that comes before. And so if you back up in the chapter and look way back, it says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And then as it explains that, that includes financially supporting widows. So mm. the, the comparison of honor 
um, this double honor. The comparison is being made to how we support widows. Now, we don't think of uh, giving to widows as the wages that they earned. Now, certainly it does say that we should only support those who have labored for the church, etc. But that's not how we typically think about it. We typically have this much healthier way of thinking of it that, you know, God would have us to particularly care for those in need. This is his prerogative. And so, it is the same case for the elders. Yes, the Lord is supporting them at the hands of other servants, but it's not to be considered uh, wages as though we're the employer or as though we are directly obligated to them rather than being directly obligated to God. Okay. So, practically speaking, could you give us like a few scenarios of what difference that would make, you know, in somebody's life? Let's say you're a writer, you're a pastor, you're, I don't know, an itinerant speaker. Sure. So, let's say you're a pastor. All right, you're a pastor. Really, ideally, there would be no difference. Most pastors today are are paid by their congregation coming together and supporting them. And what's going on there should not be the congregation coming to them as customers and paying him back for this thing he did for them, but rather all of them gathering together, recognizing that, you know, at least one man needs to be really dedicated to this. And so, uh, let him give up his time and whatever pursuits he may do otherwise, let us give up some of the fruit of our labors and we'll all work together in this way. We'll all co-labor. So a lot of people come to this and they think that I'm saying something that pastors would need to change drastically. Really, you know, pastors wouldn't have to change all that much. Now others, you know, let's say you're, um, let's say you're an author, right? And you're making royalties from your book. Well, in that case, you know, as you're selling Christian teaching, as you're selling essentially what's gospel ministry. Now, someone might say, well, you know, is my book really about the gospel? Well, if it's, if it's Christian teaching, if it's about the Bible, from a serious religious perspective and not just a secular one, you know, mm-hmm. analyzing ancient Near Eastern cultures or something like that, then yes, it is. You know, if you have a if you have a real understanding of what Scripture is communicating, you see what Jesus says in Luke 24, you see what Paul says about the ministry of the Word in 1 Corinthians 2, you should understand that it all relates back to the cross. In fact, if you're not relating it back to the cross, then you don't understand it. <laughs> so, mm. that ministry, that's gospel ministry and, and book writing, that should not be charged for. So, yeah. rather, it should be supported, once again, by co-labor. Now, there's a lot of modern solutions to this, right? You could have a Patreon account, or you could run a Kickstarter to fund these things beforehand. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of options. Or maybe you just work together with your church or multiple churches together to fund these things. So, I'm not saying that uh, you shouldn't be funded. It's just that uh, these things should happen through co-labor. And now, there's obviously a change for the one who's who's the author, but there's also a change for the supporters too. You know, when I purchase a book, I don't feel like any real tie to this person. You know, I read a few pages or maybe I read the whole book and then, uh, you know, I'm kind of done with it. However, if you're co-laboring with someone rather than purchasing ministry, you know, you have a you have a felt obligation to pray for this person. You've got an uh, obligation to hold them accountable. You know, you're not going to just uh, keep giving money to them if, if there's uh, something wrong with their ministry. And I think what we would see if we did this would be a lot more accountability, a lot more prayer and the spirit at work. And we'd also see a lot more joy. I mean, it's uh, it's much more joyful to invest in something rather than to pay a bill. And right now we've structured everything around bill paying rather than around, you know, the excitement of spiritual investing. Yeah. What if I'm an artist and I do Christian artwork with verses on it? What should I do? Right. Yeah. So, what is what is the essence of what you are 
selling? You know, is it gospel ministry or is it entertainment that's framed by a Christian worldview? You know, ideally everything we do should be framed by a Christian worldview. If we're a teacher, you know, teaching kids that if we're teaching them mathematics, when we teach them that God is orderly and therefore his world is orderly and therefore math makes sense, I don't think that somehow means that now you can't be supported for being a math teacher. Or if you Mm -hmm. make t-shirts and you try to make them more desirable to a Christian audience by putting a Bible verse on them, I don't think that becomes uh, gospel ministry. But when the essence of what you're selling is gospel ministry, when you're putting this out there uh, primarily for the edification of the church rather than for, you know, selling clothing or or entertainment or whatever it is, uh, that's, that's the dividing line. Now, that doesn't mean it's always easy to discern. You know, you've got worship artists who are clearly writing worship music for the church, and then you've got artists who are writing for entertainment, throwing in Christian lyrics occasionally, and then along there, you've got a whole spectrum. And at what point does that switch from being something uh, that's seriously gospel ministry and something that's that's not? I I don't know. You know, this, these aren't always mm-hmm. going to be easy questions to answer, just like a lot of things in life where you have to discern uh, what is right and what's wrong in the context. And I think that's a perfect segue to talk about one of the sponsors that makes this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Gooder Help. Are you hurting and lonely in the wake of the pandemic? We want to take advantage of your pain and milk it for every last penny. Our mental health experts will gladly pretend to be your friend over a Zoom call in exchange for your money. Since this is a shameless cash grab to profit from and exploit broken people, we might as well try to convince the world that pain for friendship, wisdom, and truth is normal. We offer to gently take your credit card to lead you to broken cisterns that hold no water. Sign up for Gooder Help today and become a part of our grand vision to become rich off of your depression. Now back to the interview. So let's say I charge money for my sermons online. What what should I do? Would you say, well, this is like, we can all just agree to disagree on this. This is kind of like uh, an open-handed issue, right? Or would you say this is more of a close-handed issue that's very clear in Scripture and that there needs to be repentance maybe in this area and some serious change? Well, yeah. Well, I would definitely say there needs to be repentance. Now, I would say that even about much smaller things, uh, you know, if <laughs> if I'm right, right about something and, and someone else is wrong, it doesn't matter how, uh, how many people are confused on it. Um, but uh, I think, I think to, to phrase your question differently, it's, you know, how— how much should we as as a church be pushing for for change in this area or how much should we all just uh, uh agree to tolerate things as they exist like we tolerate other small issues yeah i i think this is something where there needs to be a lot of pushback i think that we can we can certainly do so charitably and i'm coming from a place where i understand that not a lot of people have thought a lot about this and you know i've only thought this through in the past few years some of the vocabulary we're discussing is just they're just words i came up with <laughs> you know so i yeah. i don't have i don't have high expectations for people to to get this immediately however now that's that's all not to say that these are new concepts i, I hopefully what i was saying earlier about history makes it apparent these aren't just new concepts but uh, the way they need to be applied today might be a little new to people so yeah. anyway i think i think yeah there does need to be some repentance i do think People need to change the degree to which, uh, you know, Christians should start boycotting their favorite author and stuff. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go there just yet. 
mm-hmm. as far as you know, what does Scripture say about this? So in chapter chapter seven, I talk about what the Bible has to say about false teachers and what it has to say about greedy teachers. Now, at the beginning of that chapter, I have this Venn diagram of greedy teachers and false teachers, where you know a lot of people consider there to be this uh, significant overlap between greedy and. T- teachers and false teachers, but most of the time, or maybe some of the time, you know, you've got a greedy teacher who isn't false or a false teacher who isn't greedy. The picture the Bible paints is is vastly different than that because the Bible's focused on the heart, right? And the Bible says you can either serve God or you can serve money. So the way it approaches this is to focus on the heart issue rather than the necessarily the complexities of how those heart issues express themselves. And say that simply, uh, a greedy teacher is a false teacher, a false teacher is a greedy teacher, and this is supposed to be the tool we use to discern whether or not a teacher is a true teacher or a false teacher. So Mm. right now, the church is in a condition where it can't necessarily use this, at least not when it comes to things like selling books and and issues like that that are so uh, rampant. However, ideally, we would be able to, uh, and we can use that in a lot of other areas, right? There are certain things where uh, the church understands, right? If you're selling your prayers, like we can really quickly identify, okay, that's some false teaching, probably prosperity gospel kind of stuff if you're selling prayers. But I believe if we clean this up, then we'd be able to use this and tell the typical layman would be able to look at these things and say, yeah, this is uh, clear evidence that this person's a false teacher. And so I won't even I won't even hear them out. And so I'd love to get to that point, but I don't think we're, we're there yet with uh, with some of these issues. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm just thinking off the cuff here. When I was in Cameroon, I saw a lot of the effects of of false teaching, prosperity gospel gone completely off the charts. People selling holy water, uh, you know, supposed prophets uh, selling cloths that they had prayed over, things like that. So we as Westerner, Western Christians, we look at that stuff and we scoff and we're disgusted and it's just so obvious, like, wow, what an abuse, what a horrific atrocity in the name of Christ that's being done. And then we turn around and we sell our sermons and our books, our, you know, quote-unquote gospel-centered books and stuff. So do you see a difference between that <laughs> Or are we right. just blind? I'm just wondering. Right. Well, let me put it this way. I believe that most of those people who sell, are selling prayer cloths are doing so intentionally as charlatans, right? And most of the people sure. uh, running book ministries are not trying to deceive anyone. Uh, right. They themselves are deceived in, in how they should go about this. Now, you know, for, for anyone who thinks that's kind of harsh, understand the spirit in which I'm saying that. I'm, I'm not saying that as one who uh, considers himself so much better than all these other people. Um, most of these, most of the authors I read who I have to buy their books because they don't give them to me for free, I consider much holier and godlier men than me. So yeah, just mm-hmm. understand the spirit in which I say those things. Sure. But okay, so to, to continue on with that a little bit, though, you asked if there was anything substantially different between these things you see in third world countries and, or with the prosperity gospel and what we see in our own circles. And that's kind of the point of my book is to ask the question, well, what is the difference? Because usually, usually we just look at the amount of money or, you know, we kind of go for the yuck factor and there's nothing hard and fast that we're really pointing at and saying, this is the line that Christ has drawn in his word through the writings of his apostles. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to offer that line for people and offering it around reciprocity and co-labor. 
One thing I've been uh, doing lately is going through Google Books and for every year searching a lot of the terms that I mentioned in the in the book, either phrases that someone might use to talk about this, like merchandising of the word, or or phrases from some of the verses. And something that I've discovered is that well, you know, one of the one of the groups that's very concerned about. Uh, pastors being paid as Quakers. A lot of the Anabaptist groups actually said that pastors shouldn't be paid at all, right? And uh, right. Sure. and so people in responding to this would often, you know, knee jerk in the other direction and say kind of wild things about about, uh, for example, Matthew ten eight. And they would often come to the conclusion that oh, well, that's only talking about the working miracles or these kind of physical healings. But the thing is, those those uh, supernatural miracles were illustrations of a much greater, uh, a much more uh, wild, supernatural, miraculous healing that happens to the Spirit through the ministry of the Word. So, mm. it's actually the this lesser thing, not this greater thing um, that, yeah. uh, that they're proposing is not allowed to be sold, but this other thing is. I do believe that in Matthew uh, 10.8, Jesus is referring to the ministry of the Word as he spoke of two verses earlier, proclaiming the kingdom. But in addition to that, that if it's wrong to sell uh, supernatural healing of the flesh, certainly it's wrong to sell supernatural healing of the spirit. Yeah. So I guess that would apply to the whole Christian counseling industry as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my church does a lot of counseling. We have uh, three certified counselors, and we do not charge. The idea that that Christian counseling should be something that's charged for and not treated like a—I mean, if you think about something like a sermon, right? If you If you had a turnstile at the door— and you only let people in if they paid money. Everyone would know that's wrong, right? <laughs> Everyone yeah. would just know. But it's these things where we have some sort of analog in the world, like therapists or whatever, and we just kind of follow that model. And that's really what happened with copyright, too, as I was talking about that. You know, you've got these secular authors uh, using this one model for, for payment, and so you just kind of follow yeah. along. I'm pulling up here the ACBC... Uh, standards of conduct. And now ACBC is an organization that I definitely appreciate. Uh, but one of these thing, one of the things they say is... Could you tell us what ACBC stands for? Yeah, sure. The Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And so it's this group that is primarily known for not really compromising on the issue of whether or not the Bible is sufficient, like just really affirming the Bible is sufficient. We, now, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for, for medicine, etc. But um, mm-hmm. pastors are competent to counsel with the Word of God. Yeah, we don't need to, when people, has, if people have a real spiritual issue, you know, we don't need to hand them off to others. So uh, mm-hmm. anyway, one of the things they have in their, their standards of conduct is that, all right, so it says, the Bible is clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a precious gift that should be offered without price, and that it may be necessary for ministers of Christ to selflessly serve those in their care. Biblical counselors, therefore, must seek to love their counselees in discerning whether to charge fees and how much to charge. <laughs> so I find that, mm. I, I find that, I don't know. It's well, it's it's misguided. It's ironic that you know. Mm-hmm. First, they say the gospel of Jesus Christ is a precious gift that should be offered without price, and then right. they say so. Therefore, the counselor must decide whether or not to charge. No, if it, if it's to be offered without price, it's to be offered without price. There's really uh, <laughs> no two ways about that. Yikes. And so you know, as you look at Isaiah fifty five one, that says that the gospel is to be offered without price, and then you you see uh, this repeated in the New Testament, uh, specifically in Revelation twice. And then the whole book of Revelation closes with this fact 
that the gospel is offered without price. Um, mm-hmm. I, a lot of people don't realize how central this is to the Bible's message. You know, as, as Protestants, believing in the the free grace of God, and there's a serious connection between that and what happened with the indulgences in Rome. And so, here we are, 500 years later, and we've got kind of a similar issue going on. And we might think, oh, this is kind of, you know, an obscure side thing, you know, much different than this core issue of soteriology, etc. But no, the Bible, the Bible in focusing on how the gospel is a free gift and that really being central to our faith, it is necessary that we, as we proclaim the gospel, affirm that in the way we are proclaiming the gospel. And so, you know, when the Bible closes off with these words that it must be offered without price, we don't do well when we think that that's just referring to, you know, some kind of initial message or just preaching on Sunday mornings or, or however we may put it. Yeah. Amen. Well, let's change gears here. I want to throw out another objection. All the work that a Christian does, whether it's cleaning bathrooms or programming computers, is gospel work, right? So, Timothy Keller's preaching ministry is no different from a Christian car mechanic's work, right? They should both get paid for what they do. They're just faithfully doing the different jobs God has called them to do with their lives, Big objection. A lot of people, I think, would think along those lines and totally agree with that. What would you say? Yeah, well, this is uh, this is becoming a more common way of thinking about things. And I think, uh, once again, <laughs> I feel like I'm overusing this word, but it's misguided. So, especially as you see a theology of work being recovered and kind of taking on a new shape, a lot of people trying to, especially as they have, I don't know, more creative jobs and they, they see their jobs as being more purposeful than just them primarily bringing in the bread. They think of their job's primary function as being other things, you know, and asking themselves how to think of their vocation in light of um, a greater calling. And it's been easy for people to look at a verse like the one that says that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices and think, well, if that's the case, you know, then then all of life is worship. But if all of life is worship, a lot of a lot of things break down. God regulates worship pretty heavily. There are some things that are to be offered him and some things that aren't to be offered him. Uh, you see the sons of Aaron uh, destroyed because they offered to him something that shouldn't be offered to him. The Bible, fine with people making images, but when it comes to images in the context of uh, worship or images of God, you know, then uh, then suddenly it's it's regulated. So there's there's seriously a divide between what is holy and what is not holy. And if you've made everything holy, you know, to be holy is to be set apart. If if everything is set apart from nothing, then really nothing is holy. So no, I think it's I think it's important to be able to draw lines and say that some things are gospel ministry and some things are not gospel ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So here's another objection. It's it's impossible that so many Christians could be wrong at the same time, right? Millions of Christians are reading the same Bible and supporting the idea that Christianity should be commercialized. Surely it's impossible that so many Bible-saturated men and women of God could be wrong about the same thing at the same time. What would you say to that? Right, so that that is certainly, there, there's a lot of truth to that, and that's certainly reason to give pause to my thesis and to think about it critically. I wouldn't expect anybody to come to what I'm saying and to not take into account the fact that it's, that, that it's re- representing kind of a minority viewpoint. However, I do believe I, I make a decent historical case in, in chapter uh, 10 of my book, basically about how the early church was was dealing with this, affirms that uh, teaching should not be sold, and to ask the question of whether or not so many people can be so wrong at the same time, you, you just, you'd see that 
throughout the eras of the church, right? Like I was mentioning, you know, there were eras where it was very common for indulgences to be sold, and, you know, almost everybody said that that was okay. And the same thing with pew rents, and the same thing with selling relics, and the same things with, well, simony for a short while, I suppose. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. people got pretty upset about that pretty fast, but it, it continued on for quite some time. Yeah, a lot of people can be confused about something at one time. What we're facing right now is primarily new. It's They're primarily new issues centered around one copyright and two, just a lot of the modern structures we've been able to develop thanks to the advancement of technology. Let's get into a kind of a pastoral question, maybe, and sort of an objection. So I think a lot of authors under the status quo would be like, you know, the publishing companies, they make the rules. I'm just the humble author, servant, trying to help people. And so if they, they want to put all the copyrights on it and sell, if, if that's the way that I can get my message out to people, then it's not my fault. You know, what can I do? What can I do to influence the tide of this whole thing? What, what would you advise me to do? What practical steps should I take if I'm convinced by your arguments from scripture? First of all, I would say that there are a lot more options than people recognize are available to them. A lot of people think that it's Uh, prohibitively expensive to publish, but uh, it's really not. You know, I just went through this process with my book. If you order the book in the U.S., the publisher will ship it to you for free. My church funded the printing of the book, and these things are pretty manageable cost-wise. If you're popular enough of an author and you're going to be distributing that many copies, it should be all the more easy to find uh, other people to help support you in that work. Mm. Now, uh, there are certainly some areas where it's a lot harder for people depending on the system that exists. For example, in academic publishing, a lot of the scientific fields have moved to more free models when it comes to the journals. However, Uh, the liberal liberal arts fields and all the theological fields, when you publish, the journal then owns your your work, and it's really hard to get it out to other people, (laughs) because now they've locked it down into their their journal, and you might think that, well, this is the only way to uh, reach that particular audience that I want. But you got to consider you're also uh, missing out on an even bigger audience that didn't have access to those things. So it might not be as obvious as you think. And the Lord rewards faithfulness. You know, there's a lot of things that scripture says about how unexpected it is, God's rewarding of charity in general. But I think it just Mm -hmm. applies to to faithfulness overall. So, for example, uh, there's there's a verse I start off my book with in the Proverbs that says, one gives freely and grows all the richer, another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So that coordination that we expect to be there of one giving and then becoming poorer and one withholding and then getting richer, it's a lot of times it's just the opposite of uh, what happens. And you see there's a, mm. there's verse after verse that says similar things. Here's another one. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So we think about giving as being giving to this person who can't give us back, and we're not going to get anything back. But it says that we're giving to the Lord, and the Lord will repay. Now, I'm not, I'm not sitting here and telling you you're going to get financially back everything that you give, but the Lord makes good in the end, and even if that's in the next life, He is just. Yeah. Amen. So one more objection. What if I believe that what you're saying is right, but I've got too much invested already in the current model of ministry? I've got 
book royalties coming in. I'm monetizing my ministry as much as I can. I enjoy the money people pay me to promote their ministries at conferences. And so many people I respect, like Paul David Tripp and Tim Keller, are using their ministry platforms to pull in lots of money. Why would I rock the boat and possibly lose my financial stability? I think you've touched a lot on this, but maybe you could sum it up. You know, you've already got some financial stability. That's uh, something a lot of pastors deal with. You have pastors who no longer feel called to the ministry or have some, maybe they even have a secret sin that they'd like to confess, but because they have a financial obligation to their own family, they don't really know how to navigate the uh, the situation of uh, stepping down from office. There's all kinds of situations where pastors have held on to the office longer than they should because of the financial concerns. So that's really similar to what we're talking about here. It's, you know, how do you be faithful to the Lord and trust Him uh, with your finances? So another thing I'd add is, if you read the book and you read the application chapters, now I don't go too deep into the application, but I think something that people could take away from it is that Yes, the problems are great, but they're really not so insurmountable, and they're really things that we can take steps toward reformation without necessarily having to uh, upturn everything all at once. So I think that a lot of people are going to mm-hmm. be able to to take steps in the right direction without um, having to yeah wonder about how they're going to just redo everything. I have one friend who read the book and he's still thinking it through, but he's decided to stop charging for weddings and funerals. You know, that's just one example of, you know, some kind of gradual reformation that people are going through. Now, you may be wondering how this is all going to tie into the issue of Bible translation, and we are going to get there in the next episode. We'll continue our conversation with Conley and specifically address the implications of the Dorian principle for Bible translation and biblical manuscripts. This is the Working for the Word podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. My prayer is that this podcast ultimately helps us treasure the Bible more and go deeper into it and become like the man of Psalm 1.